Sairam, dear listeners, and welcome to Tris with Divinity, our ongoing series of interviews with individuals whose lives have been touched and transformed by Bhagwan Sri Satyasai Baba. Today's episode of Trist is quite extraordinary for a number of reasons. Firstly, it explores a teacher-pupil relationship based on utter humility and implicit obedience. Our guest is a highly accomplished devotee who has consciously shied away from limelight. Despite his decades-long association with Baba, we don't generally come across his name when browsing through Sai literature. Unknown to most of us, the honored guest is listed amongst the most influential Indians around the globe. His professional success is too vast to capture in a few sound bites, and his commitment to philanthropy extends across continents. And yet, he deliberately prefers to keep as low a profile as possible and describes himself as a humble servant of Bhagwan Baba. Today his name is synonymous with the Sai movement in the country of his residence namely Japan where he has worked hard to create a robust Sai movement and love for Vedic learning. He has built the Sai organization and Sai centers from ground up and instituted scholarships to successfully promote Indian culture, Sanskrit language and Vedas among the Japanese. And his passion and dedication to his master is not limited to Japan. Within the Sri Satyasai International Organization he has served as the overseas chairman of zone B countries across Asia the Middle East and Africa covering a total of 80 countries Dear listeners with us in the studio today is Mr Ryuko Hira from Tokyo Japan In his professional life Mr Hira is the chairman of the Ora group of companies in Japan He is one of the most successful Indian entrepreneurs in Japan and in the world today. Naturally, he is a leading and respected member of not only Japan's Indian community, but he is also recognized globally for his outstanding achievements both in business and charity. In the year 2010, Mr. Ryuko Hira was conferred the prestigious Pravasi Bharatiya Samman Award by the Government of India. When he's not rubbing shoulders with heads of state at the G8 summit, he's busy attending imperial functions with royalty. Interestingly, Mr. Ryuko Hira was born Kamlesh Punjabi in Jaipur, India. He graduated in gemology from the Gemological Institute of America. As a migrant to Japan, he recognized the need for proficiency in the Japanese language. Soon he completed the Japanese language studies from Sofia University Tokyo. In the late 1970s, in order to remain competitive in the global travel and tourism industry, Mr. Hira opted for Japanese citizenship with due permission of the Indian government. Currently, he owns and operates over 50 hotels and resorts in Japan and provides management and advisory services to 90 hotels. He also runs many other businesses. Most importantly, he is deeply devoted to Bhagwan Sri Satyasai Baba and a committed supporter of several projects for the underprivileged in India. He is also the father of two Satyasai students. An article published in a prestigious compilation of the world's most influential Indians described him thus and I quote 
Hira has the characteristics of the 16th century samurai warriors who were powerful yet gentle, strong as well as kind. A samurai is always cautious, careful, prompt and accurate. Hira with his gigantic multi-operational business empire remains calm and composed in his actions, equally dedicated to his activities of service to mankind. Unquote. Incidentally, this extremely busy Sai samurai has also authored the book The Study of Satisai. Such a deep and visionary commitment to the Sai mission definitely warrants a tryst conversation for the listening pleasure of Radio Sai Global listeners. And today I'm delighted to welcome Mr. Ryuko Hira to our studios. Sairam Mr. Ryuko Hira and a very warm welcome to Radio Sai. Thank you very much. I should thank you for accepting our invitation to this interview. So let's start with your journey from Jaipur to Japan that marked the evolution of Kamlesh Punjabi to Ryukohira. It's most fascinating, almost movie material. Now, when and under what circumstances does the chapter on Bhagwan Baba enter the story of your life? Well, it's an old story. Uh, I don't have a good memory, but whatever little I can recall, I will place before the listeners. First of all, Sairam to all the listeners from Japan. Perhaps what I say may be already known. The journey to Swami in Japan was established in Kobe in 1975. And in this year of 2015, year after next, we commemorate the 40th anniversary of the Japan Sai organization. I was in my 20s and today I'm in my late 60s. So 15,000 days of my life, I've had the privilege of the physical presence of Bhagwan by seeing God, by listening God, and by talking to God, and by directly learning from Him the mantra to be happy. So the story begins with the Lord entering Japan through the city of Kobe. Mm -hmm. But what's fascinating is the word Kobe in Japanese language means God's door. Mm, how appropriate. So the Lord did not come to a megapolis like Tokyo, but through his door, proving to the Japanese that the avatar is the avatar. He came as God through the door. The traditional name Kobe means the door to God. So after sowing the seeds in Kobe, three pioneer side devotees, brother J.T. Kupchandani, and his Chinese spouse, Sister Regina, late brother Ram Chugani, and his wife Kamla, and the present chairman of the Sai Samiti, brother Dayal and Sister Huri, they came to Japan to introduce Sai and his teachings. I was approached by Mr. Kupchandani for my social status, and I knew nothing about Sai. And Mr. Kupchandani told me that Baba knows me, and he has asked him specially. So I told him that I have nothing to do with Baba. I do not know him. And frankly, perhaps it was all a trap. So I persistently refused to do anything for the group of Sai coming from Kobe to Tokyo. And also, frankly, I was rather busy in my work. Those were the heydays of the Japanese economy. But nevertheless, this Mr. Kupchandani was very persistent. And he convinced me that his two sons, devotees of Sai, who have been successful in business, 
Mr. Kishin Kupchandani from Africa and Mr. Nari Kupchandani from Indonesia. And he said, if you listen to me, you will be more successful in business. So I had some interest as a businessman to see. Well, they came to Tokyo and I invited all the Indians in Tokyo. And I just said, I will only provide a hall and the rest you should take care of. So they displayed the pictures and they gave a talk on Baba and they introduced the books. And for the sake of courtesy, I attended the meeting. And suddenly at the end of the meeting, when the presentation was finished, Mr. Kupchanani stands up and tells the audience that he wants to establish a Tokyo Sai Center. And without asking me, he said, I have appointed Mr. Hira as a convener. Though I objected very much and resisted, it just happened that the Indians started clapping. And out of the blue, I was unwillingly placed into this new and unknown world of Sai. In retrospect, each of my 15,000 days since I knew about Sai have been a fascinating experience, which has been revealing the infinite power of Sai's grace. Wow. And if I miss you, I think Mr. Kupchandani's prophecy that you will have greater business success did play out. Absolutely, ma'am. Oh, the more you a... worked for Swami and the more it played yes, out. Yes, yes. Now, once Baba entered into the picture, even though you accepted that role so reluctantly to be the convener for Tokyo, how did life change? Well, frankly, it was a great mess because the change or the transformation, you know, is the only hallmark of a Sai devotee. But perhaps I was a greater sinner, so it took a longer period to change. But my observation is that the transformation of a devotee, you know, varies from a person to person. And for some, there is a very drastic change in their thinking process. Some, there is a lifestyle which is changed. And for some, there's a change of career or family. And some become, you know, very studious scholars of his teachings and so forth. So for each Sahai person, there is a different aspect of change. And Sai chooses a special or an appropriate path which is more suitable for the person's upliftment. In my case, a tremendous transformation took place even before my very first darshan. The Kobe Center people, when they opened this Tokyo Sai Center, they said that Sai had sent a message that the old samitis must do the 12-hour bhajan for Shivaratri. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was a great nuisance to inform all the Indians in Tokyo as there was no email, no fax. The fax system had just begun. And so we had to send a lot of post mail. I sent about 200 invitations uh, for the very first March Shivaratri in Tokyo, with each was costing about 80 cents and made all the other preparations. And I knew nothing, so I asked this Kup Chandani, and he said, all you have to do is just sing the bhajans till 6 a.m. Uh, with a picture of Baba or Shiva, and uh, you should try to fast all night. But I had no picture of Shiva in my house, and only of Satya Sai Baba, which one picture was left by Mr. Kup Chandani. Anyway, the day of Shivaratri came, mm -hmm. And I had a busy day at office and I came in time to find that not a single person had come <laughs> to attend this Mahashivratri pageant in Tokyo. So I thought that they will be late in coming. And I started the prayers and bhajan. But I had never sung a bhajan in my life. 
And I had some experience of playing a piano, which helped me to play a few keys of the harmonium. But when I started my life's first bhajan on the Shivaratri day, and since no one came to sing, I was all alone singing and reciting continuously the same bhajan over and over again <laughs> because I knew only one or two from that book. And the voice became rather hoarse and tired and I was told to sing continuously so I could not go to the washroom and uh, just stay put. Well, I looked at Sai's picture and I told him, buddy, I can't do it anymore because I know only these two or three bhajans and uh, we're going to stop it now and I'm going to sleep. So I decided to give up and close this bhajan and a strange thing happened. Uh, there were no push phones in those days, so the dial phones. Mm -hmm. And the telephone bell rang in my house. And it was about 8 or 10 meters to the place where the telephone was kept. So I had to walk from where I was sitting. As there was no one at home, so I picked up the phone. And I just said hello, hello on the phone. But no one answered. And suddenly on the telephone, a very sweet and melodious bhajan begins. It goes on and on and on. And the voice was so captivating that the first time I experienced tears in my eyes and I cried. And the bhajan was melodious. And at first I kept saying hello, thinking that, you know, it's a wrong number. And because the bhajan was so captivating that my whole body, especially the head which was exhausted with the singing for a few hours, it was recuperated like an endless tape. That bhajan went on for a long time, maybe seven, eight minutes or nine minutes. Was it a male or a female voice? Oh, it was a female voice. And uh, it was very melodious. Do you remember what bhajan it was? No, madam. If I go into my old books, I intend to write a book before I die. I hope I can. But if I find, I will certainly put that. I'm sure it must be written somewhere. After it stopped, I felt very different. And I restarted the bhajan, this time with more awe rather than an obligation to Mr. Kupchandanya. <laughs> as to who could have called me anyway, I was just awed by it. Anyway, the clock started to show it's 6 a.m. and I was relieved soon that I could now eat breakfast and I realized that I don't have the picture of Shiva. So how do I finish the ceremony? And again, a strange thing happens just a little before 6 a.m. Now not the telephone, but the doorbell rings a little before 6 a.m. And a cousin brother called Suresh N. Punjabi, he came saying that an Air India flight was uh, stranded or delayed and he has landed in Tokyo on his way to Osaka, which is southwest of Tokyo, and that uh, he had brought a picture of Shirdi Sai Baba with a lingam and some snake on the picture. So we finished the bhajan and started to eat our breakfast. Of course, I was a non-vegetarian, so my usual breakfast is of eggs or of ham and sausages and uh, bacon, whatever it was. But I could not eat that morning. The body just would not accept, although I was very hungry. And the cook which does the breakfast said that you may have lost your appetite because of doing funny things of singing all night and fasting and so forth. So I just took some tea and after that I began to smoke. I was a heavy smoker, smoking two or three cigars a day and I would have about two packets of cigarettes. But as soon as I smoked, the tongue started to burn, and again a strange phenomenon took place. At uh, lunch or dinner, also I could not eat meat 
or I could not drink alcohol or smoke. And I suddenly realized that overnight that an internal sort of a magical transformation of lifestyle had taken place. And because of my, you know, work, professional work, usually I would eat two or three years in a night with different groups. My assistants would take three groups and I would attend each dinner 50, 60 minutes and one of the, you know, very large banquet style dinners. And with two or three dinners in the same night entertaining high-level people, it's impossible to remain a vegetarian in those days. So all this lifestyle in just one night without any pain by itself, all the alcohol, all the tobacco, and all the eating of meat, fish, and egg, it just stopped in one night and my whole approach to life had changed completely. This was the very first miracle that my eating and drinking, smoking lifestyle was transformed. And I began to study the first books on Baba. And the first book that I read was Loving God by uh, Brother Kasturi and other books which made me understand how the Baba respects India as a nation. Because though I was born as an Indian, I had no opportunity to study about India and its glory. And the first book after reading this Loving God, I could respect and serve India as a motherland. So to me as an overseas Indian, frankly, the first experience was of the lifestyle and the second transformation was that belief that I became a true Indian, firmly installed through his summer lectures about the glory and pride of India. Uh, Some, of course. That, yeah, and especially that Baba, he has said that India is one of the most exemplary nations of the world. And that's what attracted me to Baba the most. Hmm. And uh, this, in the process, I believe you did go through a personal dilemma because you had to get yourself a Japanese nationality and in the process you had to undergo change of name. And again, Baba guided you in the process. Very briefly, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Well, about the change of my name, it was not by my choice, but by necessity. As you know by now that I am the same age as independent free India. And in my primary and high school education, we experienced three wars with China and Pakistan. The British rule had not provided enough schools and universities. So even in big cities like Mumbai, where I spent my childhood, the schools were open-air, outdoor schools to be shared with the street chickens or the street pigs and uh, with the pigeons and dogs coming in and out of the class. And the rains would really drench us all. Life was miserable. And to ease the great difficulties, the Communist Party of India would go to schools. They would offer raincoats, they would offer gumboots, and they would recruit high school students as volunteers for the Communist Party. And in my own personal case, during my middle school, a veteran Hindu-Indian actor called Balraj Sani mm. and others would come to the school on behalf of the Communist Party to recruit students. So India's political situation at that time was rather fragile. And in the high school, they had what they called the NCC, that is the National Cadet Corps. And that was focused for the high school students to join the junior army and to serve 30 days in the camps. And I was fortunate as my family had some small overseas business, which is now nearly 100 years of age. So as soon as I finished high school, the Pakistani and the Chinese wars were going on. 
and the ladies and the young ones at home were sent abroad for safety. So a decade later, in the 1970s, the situation in India got from bad to worse. That the government of India nationalized all the major businesses, including the banks, the insurance companies, the airlines, and others, to stabilize the nation. And major business houses and their overseas assets were also being nationalized. You see, so being a stateless refugee from Sindh family, where we lost and left everything due to the partition. Sindh in Pakistan. Right, right. We did not want to live in poverty again. So my eldest brother said one family member should become a Japanese national to save the family's assets from being nationalized in foreign countries. So being the youngest of five brothers, and I had some fluency in Japanese language, I was asked to become a Japanese. But having intensely read Baba's books and teachings about the supremacy of the motherland, I had great resistance to change my name. And to give up my Indian nationality, but due to shortage of time, I can't put the whole story. Perhaps it's somewhere on the Japanese government site. All I recall is that I meditated intensely on Baba, whether I should change my nationality or I should not change my nationality. On Mount Fuji, I believe. That's right. So I went to a sacred Mount Fuji, which is incidentally last month declared by the United Nations as a World Heritage. To meditate, and I came back with the answer that a passport document, or nationalization, or register, does not make you an Indian or an another national. It is simply a matter of convenience of life. I mean, as Baba said, the true Indian is a person Bharatiya who carries the divine values in his heart. So I stuck to that principle. And I recalled his stories of five mothers, motherland being just one, and four others were still with me. So I finally decided to take up the Japanese nationality. But the reason for the change of name is less than one percent of Japanese population speaks English. Before the war, there was zero point one percent of people who used to speak English, because, like in France, we're a very nationalistic nation.、Mm -hmm. But in sixty years after the war, it went up ten times from zero point one percent to one percent. So when a foreign person has a Japanese nationality, they can't write his names in alphabets because our script is calligraphy-like. When you draw, which if you want to write a river, you just simply draw two banks and a water in between. So it's like kanji. These are pictorial characters is comprised in our script. So, if one had to write my name in the Japanese language, it would be very funny if it was literally translated. Like Kamalesh means the lotus, and Asia means the king of the lotus, and Punjab. Then they have to write five rivers and so forth. So it's a bit too out of place. And the bureaucratic offices, since there were no computers and they can't write in the alphabets, we had to change the name by law. And that was very trying. So there is a Hindu temple on top of the Mount Hira in Shiga Prefecture, which is near the Kyoto, the old capital. And there's a Vishnu temple on top of that mountain. As you know, most of the Indian gods came to Japan with Lord Buddha's teachings about 1,800 years ago. So 
That temple, there was a priest who calculated all the names of my Indian names and ancestral names, and they gave me a name called Hira Duko. Hira is the name of the mountain on which the temple stands. And Duko, Ryu means the dragon, and Ko means tiger. And the word Ryu means the dragon, as you know, has originated in the Indian mythology and then gone to the eastern countries. And Ko, tiger, or the lion, which sits next to Baba, it needs no definition. So the dragon represents prosperity in the Eastern culture and the lion represents or the tiger represents the strength, which I don't have both. I don't have prosperity and I don't have strength. So oh, you're being very modest. So perhaps sir. that's the name. Uh, and you live up to your name. Now, as an eminent businessman and as a leading hotelier, you're in the thick of the service industry. How has knowing Baba influenced or helped you to get where you are? And has it transformed your business practices and outlook to a more love-all-serve-all perspective? The 15,000 days that you've been with him? Well, about the Baba's influence and how it helped me to get or where I wanted to get. Well, uh, my belief is that Baba is the absolute and the ultimate shareholder of our business or of our empire. And every empire in the world he is the true and ultimate owner or the shareholder. Some people realize that earlier, some realize that later. So the fortunate ones know and the others have yet to discover. Because Baba is the owner of the business, business itself becomes a sadhana or the business itself becomes a spiritual exercise. So to discover the divine munificence in business is the real purpose of business. That realization crumbles the ego of the greatest entrepreneur in all ages once she realized that God, Baba, is the doer of all the achievements, which I experienced uncountable times whenever I had to make any important decisions, I would physically ask him and he would guide more as master of my own business or the owner of my own business rather than as a God. So, uh, and all those guidances that you received they all worked in your favor? Well, absolutely. I just cannot describe to you a number of times. But what is more important is not only the huge amount of profits that he grants, but how he protects you from the losses. One of the most impressive incidents which I physically and personally asked him in the 1980s early, Japan was very affluent more than now. And it was aggressively investing in foreign countries. And I have a small business of hotels. And uh, so there was a transaction rather well-known throughout the world. It was called property which belonged to the Standard Chartered Bank located at number one wireless road. It's a huge uh, property of some 80,000 rai. And the Standard Chartered Bank was acquired by some of the eastern people. And the bank was experiencing great difficulties, so they wanted to sell the land. And being a bank, they have to sell the land by a public auction. So I was invited in the auction. Our, our company was invited. The process is rather strict for very large auctions. And I was very emphatic because the land was the prime place just near the Imperial Palace. And one cannot have it again. It's, it's like a very precious piece of land for any development of multi-stories. 
Is it in Tokyo? No, it's in Bangkok. Bangkok. In oh, Bangkok. Thailand. Okay. Yeah, in Thailand. Mm. It's called Number One Wireless Road was the name of the asset. And we were shortlisted to buy, which means amongst the first five people. And we took a team of about 50 people to do the analysis and we made a bid of $800 million for just the land because the bank had to be rescued. And after making the bid for that land, we were shortlisted amongst the best three. So we were invited at the regional head office of the bank in Hong Kong to negotiate the details. And when I had asked Baba that I want to do this transaction, that we will be building three huge towers. One was a hotel, one was an office block, and one was a residential block. Each one would be about 100 stories, and perhaps one of the most impressive development. And he said, yes, yes, you can do it. So I had great confidence, and I was proceeding full steam ahead with taking 50 people from Japan, staying there months doing the analytical work. And we came on the table to negotiate the final terms. But I was asked at that time that the monies should be paid in third countries to save taxes to the king of Thailand. And we couldn't do that because it was a very high-profile public project. So I started to pray to Baba that how come you blessed the project and I'm facing these impediments. Well, anyway, they gave us one day... There are three people, buyers, to make a decision whether you would like to accept the terms of an offshore payment. The reason of offshore payment was because when the Standard Chartered Bank, as you know, Thailand was being ruled by American England by the Allied forces. So the Standard Chartered Bank was established there for a longer time and the book value of their land was only $1. So if they were to offer the land for sale, the entire amount would go into taxation and the yield to the bank would be rather small. I'm talking this in due respect of morality and ethics to all my friends in the Standard Chartered Bank. It is not to bring the bank's immoral points. So when we came to the decision that we cannot bid this, much to my disappointment, the bidder was another Japanese firm which acquired. And I was very dejected and I thought that Swami's blessings are not the right thing to be asked in business. He is more spiritual and, and we shouldn't ask him about business things. So this particular person, they did this adharma of paying in the third country of offshore and it was a huge high-profile project. All the construction was completed and opened. And after three and a half years, the promoters were arrested for doing the adharma of the offshore payments. And not only that, seven years later, which means 10 years when the project started, the property market in that country crashed. So the just land alone was about 700 odd million dollars. And the 300 story buildings combined would be about 2.5 billion dollars. Because of the Japanese boom which had contracted, the crash was so much that the value of all the assets went one-third. So this just shows that how Swami protects without asking. And when he says yes, uh, he says yes in terms of protection, not in the human sense of greed and desire. So there is a firm belief of not to do anything in life without consulting the real owner of the business, which is God himself. Mm. So that is one of the experience. But I just want to mention that 
that just crumbles the ego of the greatest entrepreneur in all ages. You know, one cannot only feel or think that Baba is the owner, but one has to really practice the detachment from wealth and power. So one is day... It, is it hard? Yeah, in the beginning it is hard, but once you become habituated, it is much more easier to put the blame on Baba. <laughs> <laughs> because he knows what he's doing right, and you realize, actually, it's not a blame, but it's the greatest blessing. But uh, The responsibility is his. Yeah. So one day Baba gave us permission, talking about his influence, to visit the overseas countries to introduce uh, the super speciality hospital projects and later the water projects. So Brother Indulal Shah, the founder of the Satisai organization, myself, uh, Dr. Safaya and Justice Pien Bhagwati, we went to London and we made a presentation at the Wimbledon Theatre about Swami's Seva projects, talking about this detachment and Seva. So, although for the first time in my life I got some kind of a standing ovation for this Baba's talk, it was only due to Swami's mm -hmm. grace. But the work was only half done with that talk. The main point of my visit was to bring the awareness of the primary duty of detachment from wealth and for the people there to make contribution to the worthy cause of Swami's projects. But the second half was to actually see the results of the donations to implement these massive projects in those days. And I felt that I had let down Baba from my responsibility of arranging those resources for the divine projects. Because all the people, they listened to the talks, but they were not, you know, being detached and sending as much as they should or they could. Or So I was depressed. And I consulted my wife that, what shall we do? And I said, we should sell our house in Tokyo and do our duty to Bhagwan because he has given us the responsibility to go there and talk. So I took the estimates of the most reputed real estate agent, and they said that the minimum price if we could sell our house would be about $20 million. So I flew to Baba, and he was most gracious to call me for an interview. I told him, Swami, that I have failed in my duty of putting enough of the resources from other parts of the world, and people have not uh, made their contributions. So I have decided to sell my house and we will transfer the money for the divine projects of the hospital or whatever it was. Then Baba looked into my eyes and with the greatest ease, he told me, do not sell your house. Then he said a statement, which in his words, he says, which mother will allow her son to stay in a rented house? Uh -huh. So we see here that those who surrender everything to Bhagwan, for them, wealth is only a spiritual tool of divine seva. So also, the other lesson of the business being influenced by Baba is that Bhagwan does not want anyone's resources. How do you say that when all the projects that are run here for humanitarian purposes are fueled and funded by donations from devotees? Yes, he does not want their donations or he does not want their resources. Mm -hmm. He is only a giver. He never takes. And uh, he said once in the interview room, if Bhagwan wills, there will be a rain of rupees. These are his words. So we see that Baba's main message is complete and absolute detachment 
has to be learnt and practiced by every businessman by keeping all the financial, human and technical and other resources at the divine lotus feet. When he says, when he takes a project, he does not depend on anybody's, anybody's donations or anyone's contributions because he knows that what is going to happen and before he takes. But as you know, which is a well-known story most of you must be knowing, he used to talk very frequently to move people to detachment, to sacrifice to Tiaga for contributing to these various humanitarian projects. One day we were sitting just outside his room and a school student gave him a letter. So he asked the student, may I open this letter and read to everybody? But the student was very shy. Swami opened the letter and read and it is in the formal discourse also. The boy's letter said, O Bhagwan, every day you are giving discourses that people should make contributions of sacrifice and detachment. I'm from Calcutta and my mother sends me 100 rupees to pay to the dobi to wash the clothes in school. However, I cannot donate money because I come from a poor family. Mm. I will start washing these clothes by myself and if you can buy one brick with those hundred rupees mm. and put in that, I have done uh, my seva or my duty to listening to Baba. A child has written that. So we see mm. the purpose of Swami informing the projects to people is not at all to collect donations. God never takes, He only gives. He is absolute, you see. So it is only the humanitarian projects are the process to the people of detachment. And He gave a great message about the definition of detachment. He says, what is attachment and detachment? He said that deep attachment to God is detachment. So we see the only influence of Swami in business is to surrender that the business belongs to him. He is the chairman and the shareholder and we're just uh, his humble servants and to continue working in his teachings. Including following ethics where you lost such a huge deal in Thailand, for yes, example. Yes, yes. In the process you gained because you would have been a victim of the huge loss. Yeah, well, I would be on the streets. Mm, such a huge loss. I understand. Sir, a person of your means can easily educate his children in the most prestigious of private schools anywhere in the world. Now, your daughter has studied in Baba's school in Prashantanilayam and your son continues to be a Baba student, a Sai student in Puttaparthi. Would you like to explain your choice to our listeners? Well, why I chose the Satisai school? You have put two points in your question. One is there are so many prestigious schools in the world. The other is why I chose. Because your children can be studying their royalty studies. Yes, well, the educational institutions of Bhagwan are the most prestigious, rather the only prestigious schools in the whole world. The prestige of a school is comprised by academic standards, or it is sports standards, or by standards of character building. If the size schools were to participate in the grading process, or the global grading process of the world's best institutions, they will all have a global standard which will be the highest. 
So I have seen, I have experienced, and I have worked myself to receive my own satisfaction, and I'm convinced that the Sai School is the world's most prestigious school. I feel like clapping to that because I completely agree with that. I thought I was the only enthusiast. Well, you see, the significance of the Sai School, each teacher, as you know, is a guru in the true sense. I mean, of removing the darkness, the ignorance. So the guru delivers the child the elimination of wisdom. So we see that the present Satisai schools, Bhagwan has chosen teachers of no less caliber. You know, they are saints in trousers. And saris. Yeah, and saris, please pardon me. But Bhagwan has chosen the world's best teachers to be the gurus in his institutions. Baba has chosen today those teachers who will have the privilege to carry his mission. You see. So we see the teachers continue even today in that same tradition and I'm sure this will continue forever in the Sai schools because that is his Sankalpa. Also we have the example of the sage Valmiki. So he was a transformed teacher and who taught the Ramayana to the divine uh, children of Mother Sita and the Lava and Kusha. And later, Lava and Kusha, they sang the divine story of Ramayana during the Ashwamedha Yagna congregation. And at that time, Lord Sri Ramachandra confirmed what was sung by these two children is true. Even today, all the Sai students sing and extol the glory of Avatar. So there is no difference between the Valmiki, the Mashishta and Sandipani and the present Sai schools. There is no difference. The only difference is that it is happening in the present age and we are able to witness this. But somebody has to academically study the process and analyze and scholastically put it in that framework. Then we have the similarity of the Sai teachers who resemble the highest ideals of the iconic teacher, Sage Vashishta. We see the ideal teachers of Lord Rama. And when we see Sage Vashishta, he has established the system of Gurukula. Starts from him, the residential college on the banks of River Beas. And he was taking care of thousands of students in those days. So today, Sai schools are similarly located on the holiest of the river Chitravati. And each principal of the school is a sage who has undergone the penance of surrendering their entire lives 24 hours, 365 days, only for the welfare of Sai children. The Sai principals and the teachers have done more than the parents can do. They have surrendered their entire lives. So I have no question in my mind that I have done the best choice and this will continue till I am able to deliver my promise to Swami that the first Japanese citizens to become Sai students, my children, I had prayed to Bhagwan that they will do the seva of bringing the Sai ideal education to Japanese schools. It may take another 30 or 40 years. But I have chosen that school for my children because I prayed intensely to Baba for eight years to please accept them. And for eight years, he couldn't accept them. And after he blessed them with this highest boon one can get is to become a Sai student. And also, I'm quite sure that for my own personal reasons about not choosing a Japanese school. Because as you know, Japan was defeated in the Second War. 
and General MacArthur wrote the new Japanese constitution, which we have today, which prohibits spiritual or religious education. Even the Japanese public schools, they cannot learn about their own spiritual or religious values. This was done to maintain the supremacy over a defeated nation by suppressing the nationalism, you see, national values or epics and ethos. So the Shinto and the Buddhist and other religions were prohibited from the syllabus in the consequence, you know, very scholastic, very materialistic Japanese society with no spiritual base in the educational system. Of course, there were excellent private schools which I could have sent to Christian schools, Buddhist or the Shinto faiths, but there is nothing to match the requirement of an ideal Indian school. So we prayed to Bhagwan, and he granted our boon. Beautiful to hear that from a parent of a Satisai student, actually two students. Now your family is very committed to Bhagwan and your wife, Mrs. Kayoko Hira, she heads the Institute of Satisai Education. All this work is very time-consuming. It requires deep commitment, as does, I'm sure, your vast business empire. Where do the Hiras draw their inspiration from and how do they manage their time to get so much done? You're all a family of overachievers. Well, I think uh, I don't fit that comment of yours, but about how to draw inspiration is, the very word inspire is the motivation of the inner spirit, as you know, the inner aspirations. The secret of finding time and deep commitment comes from the Jyoti meditation. The Dhyanavahini is the theory of success because without concentration you cannot take one step in life. So the Dhyanavahini is the theory of success which helps every entrepreneur. So do you practice Jyoti meditation yes. every day? Yes, madam. And this Jyoti meditation is for three things it gives. The breath, the thought and the time. So when we do Jyoti meditation... The life source of our breath is regulated, which involuntarily controls the thought process. And it brings a tremendous speed of action, which saves a lot of time that can be used for Sai Seva. So the simplest theories of Bhagwan grant infinite rewards. And, uh, you know, there are seven steps which are put. The first is the environment. The breath comes from the environment. So if you're in a good environment, good thoughts come. So he said satsanga all the time be in good place. Then the breath itself, which conveys the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And the thoughts themselves lead to the so-called willpower, the icha shakti to do something. And from that icha we come to the kriya shakti to do the actual action power. And from that our habit or character is formed. And that habit or character decides the destiny of man, you see. So in these seven processes of this Dhyanavahini, you come in business especially. It's one of the most handy tools and the easiest to take care of. You know, that's the best analysis of spirituality in business that I have heard. Very nicely said. And it's amazing to hear it from a person who actually practices it. Well, I, I still have to go a long way. I'm still greedy in spirituality. But it's just one step. It's a good greed to have. Spiritual greed, I guess. Now, let's talk about this interview that you had with Baba one time. And Swami told you specifically that youth is very important. And he gave you three ideals for a youth. Respect for parents, respect for teachers and respect for elders. And he said this is very important. 
This led you to explore Baba's childhood history. What can you share about that incident? Well, that there was no youth wing in the overseas Sai organization at that time. We had no youth wing till we started first in the Asian Sai centers and later in the other countries joined. So we organized the first international youth conference, and the proceedings are all recorded. I mean, not Bhagwan's divine discourses. I mean, the proceedings of the youth conference. And a number of youth schemes were started, which made a U-turn. And later on, those schemes U-turn in the sense they were later on adopted by Indian Sai Samitis. So I believe the best way to see Swami's reaction for a youth program was to deliver Baba's very own lifestyle as a youth. So very little was known about his youth, especially in English language at that time. So I asked Swami for three things. First was that I want to do the first ever exhibition on the theme of Mother Ishwarama. And this exhibition was held at uh, Whitefield in Bangalore, which he inaugurated with his divine hands. And the second was to pray to him to accept the life-size photo paintings of Mother Ishwarama and Father Venkataraja which he blessed and decorated in the main uh, hall of the Tri Mandir. And the last permission which we asked him was to have the first international youth conference. So after this youth conference, I realized there was a tremendous need by the youth to see Baba's actual youth behavior. Mm-hmm. And I decided to make the first ever live stage drama play on his youth. And I went to pray and seek his permission. And he said, no, Hira, no. He first said no, because I guessed the reason he's saying no, it may not be to his highest standards and expectations. Nobody can play the youth of Sai. Mm-hmm. And we can't expect Baba to watch the rehearsals. But he said no. But I was very adamant and rather persistent. So I continued to pray and I fasted till he will permit on the last day of departure, he called finally. And he said, Japan, come inside. So we went inside. And he asked about, what is this fasting about the play? <laughs> so he put several strict conditions. He said, if I allow you, I have to allow everybody. I said, Swami, that is your business. Mm-hmm. Whom you allow, you, whom you don't, because you know who can do what, who cannot do what. So he put several strict conditions. The first was that he said, not the youth of Sai, but the childhood of Sai. Okay. Then he said, keep it as Bala Sai only during his school days. Okay. This was very difficult because very little was known of the school days. So we collected and interviewed as much as we could to enact the first play because it had to be in perfection, you see. Which was by his grace finally most successful. And he materialized several things for the actors. And all the uh, rules of Baba were maintained that all were girls who were dressed as his boys. And the name of the play was Raju that we had put. And after this, I prayed to him for the Sai youth to be allowed to do the play on Ishwarama, the first play. He said, because many people told me when Baba is living, you cannot have a play on him. So in that Ishwarama, we could bring I wanted to go the other way around when he said that you cannot bring a youth. If I bring Ishwarama, he will allow to bring the youth, you see. So 
display where we show that how he lived with Mother Ishwarama and the three ideals of respecting parents, teachers and elders. And this play was held in the Kalyan Mandap in the Trai. And after the play was finished, Bhagwan stood in the hall for a long time. He blessed all the few hundred devotees from Japan. He was immensely pleased. When I escorted him back to the Trai Mandir, he said that the actor, the Japanese actor, he was so good that I'm afraid the people will think that he's real Sai <laughs> and they may go to worship him instead of me. These are the words he mentioned. Wow. And so the play Raju is the script of the Swami's Childhood Days book that I mentioned. Beautiful. And you went about it so methodically doing your research. First of all, fasting to get your way with him. Yeah, because it's not easy to please unless there is a very firm determination if people are half-hearted and if he gives permission, then, you know, God can be very chaotic. So he has uh, his own standards of granting permission, which only he knows. Mm -hmm. Now, Brother Hira, you've had such a history of association with Swami. If you go down memory lane, what are your fondest memories of His Divine Grace, His intervention, your interactions, just the fondest ones that come from your heart, anything you recall? Well... He's always there when you want him. That is the fondest memory. There was a time there were no Balvika school teachers in Japan. And I couldn't learn or pronounce Hindi properly. But I have to learn as a teacher first before I can teach. The southernmost island of Japan was Okinawa, which was two and a half hours flying time. And the students said they want to have a class every week without a teacher. So I used to go every week flying two and a half hours back and forth to teach over Incredible there. Incredible commitment. And then that. on the ending of the class, he showers all the students with the vibhuti. But one of the most memorable incidences is that there was a Japanese devotee, a young boy, he's dead now. His name was Mr. Hoshino from Kobe and Osaka. The vibhuti of about three and a half inches appeared on the whole picture of Baba full picture of the Abhayasta. But this vibhuti was different from any other vibhutis, that the color of the vibhuti was golden color. We had never seen. So I brought the sample of the photo and the actual vibhuti, and I was fortunate when he called in the interview room. I asked him, Swami, why is this vibhuti golden? And he said, silver devotion, silver vibhuti, golden devotion, golden vibhuti. So beautiful, my God. I've never heard that before. This was at your Balvikas class? No, this it's is Mr. Uh, Mr. Hoshino's photograph. And three and a half inch thick. Huh? Yeah, and we distributed the calendar, pocket calendar photographs of that about 35 years ago in Prashantinilayam at that time. Golden vibhuti, Wow. And personally, he must have spoken to you and your family many, many times. Well, the last few years, uh, he was most gracious. Uh, he would call home for dinner at every visit. To Yajur Mandir? Yes. And always he would give very graciously the time for spiritual advice and what to do for the organization and so forth. But we are not supposed to, you know, talk about mm -hmm. these personal interactions. I see. Anything that was generic that listeners can draw inspiration from and learn from? Yes, uh, he was always concerned 
about the work which was going on, the Sai work in the respective countries. The key point was that uh, he mentioned once that when a child is born, the mother and father prepare everything from the cradle to the toys, his clothes, and they make plans for his studies, and they have hopes. He said, do you think when God is born that no plans are made when he comes on earth? Hmm. So he said that all the Sai organization people, including the one who has yet to join, are a part of the great divine master plan. We may be aware of that or we may be unaware of that. And therefore, once that awareness comes that we are a part of the divine, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his fingers, and we are his eyes, then the concept changes. And then he intervenes himself because the question was of divine interventions. So when I would visit the Baldvikas class, if I couldn't pronounce the Hindi words, he would just, at that nick of the moment, bring the words which I had never learned in my life, you see. So I have many times experienced about the divine interventions. Beautiful. My God. Now, just a hypothetical question. If you had just one moment to interface physically with Bhagwan right now, what would you say to him? Well, I think uh, silence is what he prefers usually without saying anything, just to see his form, because there has been no avatar who has given his feet to the public so if he was to appear physically, I would just ask for his divine lotus feet, nothing else. Do you long for the physical form? Yes. So beautiful, wasn't it? Yeah. Baba's Mahasamadhi, what does it mean to you, sir? I think the Samadhi is the symbol of detachment from the body. Mm. And it is a symbol of the great awareness of one's own self. You've been so keenly involved in the growth of the Sai movement. In your opinion, what's the future of this movement in the physical absence of the avatar? Well, I think the Sai organization is still in the evolutionary process. Like man's very own physical evolution took a long time. When he said the organization will live for a thousand years, it's only evolved for 50 years. So it's 0.5%. The evolution of 99.5% has yet to be evolved. Therefore, the good visions and the good dreams of the leaders, Sai leaders, will all be realized with Swami's guidance and inspiration. I think the future of the Sai organization is one that will be only force that can lead the world, which is required. And as time passes by, we will see that will happen more rapidly than most people expect it to happen. Hmm. Uh, what are our challenges, though, in this process? Well, I think in the true sense, being a divine organization, there are really no challenges at the moment. The challenges are just an illusion of the people there. A divine organization of the Satisai has no challenges. But if one has to see... I think the biggest challenge of the Sai organization is the ignorance of the self. We must have a very clear short, long and medium-term planning, which is already in place. But still, Baba doesn't want, as you know, any numbers. He has always talked about high quality. 
and therefore the evolution will be very slow but it will be in perfection and in that sense because it is slow there are many people who are unable to catch with that slow lifestyle because it's a fast world at the moment so i think that's one of the challenges because subtlety is hard to catch for some people right. who are at a different level now you kept saying earlier you mentioned that baba's way will come to the forefront more rapidly more sooner than most people imagine why is his message so important in today's world well we see that the population has grown to 6 billion and uh, all the world institutions are showing that it will reach 10 billion more people more thoughts and more thoughts require more clarity so the purpose of the sai avatar is to simplify to decode the divine message of the vedam because he is the veda avatar himself so i think the relevance of the sai avatar has just begun in global terms now when we take a view of the 6 billion people mm-hmm. and when we have a comparative study of the avatars which look at lord christ we look at lord buddha the christianity the first bible came 500 years after lord christ so we are nowhere near in terms of time frame it is just so recent and what he has left and in case of lord buddha it reached japan 700 years after he left the body so we can see his message is so eternal that it will bring there is a need which will bring the change finally who is bhagwan shri satyasai baba for you well you got me a very difficult one right at this spur of the moment i really don't know i still have to find out i believe because to find a word that befits his glory is beyond human description human beings cannot describe who satyasai baba it's impossible for me to describe his glory you see and this is coming from a person who has had so much of physical direct close contact with him so did you at times feel you were interacting with an enigma you had no idea who he was yes i think at times he is a father at times he is mother at times he is a friend at times he is god at times he is a very strict teacher so he has uh, various roles he plays in life but one cannot describe him as just as the vedas say it's hard to capture your final thoughts your final words for the listeners of radio sai all over the world well uh, i would like them all to visit japan and to see sai's glory as much as possible and as soon as possible we hope that happens soon thank you so very much for joining us today really really deeply appreciate you sparing the time for this interview sir and great pleasure ma'am sai ram sai ram ji Saram dear listeners you just heard an episode of Trist with Divinity our guest today was Mr Ryuko Hira of Japan he was in conversation with Radio Sai's Karuna Munshi we look forward to your feedback as always you can reach us at listener@radiosai.org thank you so much for your company and please continue to stay tuned to our next program Here is wishing you a loving sairam from all of us at Team Radio Sai.